you have your Bible today, turn to Isaiah 43. We're, to, we're going to be talking about being in the presence of God. I don't know how much better the praise and worship can get, guys. This is just awesome. It does two things. It makes me not want to preach because I just want to hear more praise and worship. And then it makes me want to preach longer. So we're in a real pickle here. Little faith, great God. The potential of God's presence. Whose presence would absolutely impact you the most? If you had to pick one person from history, one person that you could think of, whose presence would have the most impact on you? Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you love art. And maybe you could go back to, to Michelangelo's time. And maybe you could go to the Sistine Chapel. And you could watch day after day as this man crept up on that scaffolding. And day after day, he would strain above his head so that after a couple of years of doing this, after a couple of months of doing this, actually, he couldn't actually bring his head head down to look level again because he'd spent so much time looking up as he created this picture of God reaching out and touching the finger of man. Maybe that would be the impact for you, but maybe not. Maybe if you went to the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Elah where David, this 17-year-old boy, is marching out, He's, he has seen this, this giant this man, I can reach almost eight feet tall, and Goliath was every bit of this. And this 17-year-old boy comes out, and he comes out with a slingshot. And you see this giant who has this spear that weighs 15 to 20 pounds, just the spear, this javelin that he can throw so far that David doesn't have a prayer. He doesn't have a chance. And I can just hear the giant coming down to David, and David saying to him, today, today I'm going to cut your head off and all of the world will know that our God is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob of Israel. Maybe that impacted the most. Maybe you were on the Mediterranean and you, were, you thought you were on this, this Mediterranean Riviera type vacation and you were on the beach and all of a sudden, this huge fish comes flopping up on, on shore and throws up all over the place. And in this nasty goo, this stuff that comes out of this fish, you see something moving and you realize it's a man. And you realize it's Jonah and he's been in the belly of this fish for three days and he's shaking off this stuff and he maybe jumps into the water. And you realize because he's been in the belly of the fish, all of the hair of his body has dissolved and he's bleached. He's, you know how your hands get wrinkled after a couple of minutes, an hour in the water. He's been in, in stomach juices for three days. He's a wrinkled prune and he's bleached out. And he says, I have to go to Nineveh to tell people about God. Would that impact you just a little bit? We don't think of the stories like that, do we? And yet the Lord says, there's one person whose, whose presence would impact you the most, but we have a hard time putting into 3D, putting into our life the impact of God every day in our life. But Isaiah 43, 2, look at what it says. It says, when you pass through the waters, not if you pass through the waters, but when you pass through those waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk 
Through the fire you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You are God alone in the good times and bad. You are on your throne. You are God alone. That's what that song just said that we sang. And the Lord says the potential of God's presence is so overwhelming you can't even imagine, you can't fathom what it would do if you realize that God is with us in the good times and bad. Here's where we're going. If we truly crave meaning, if we crave power, satisfaction, security in our lives, God's presence is not optional, it's essential. How can we realize the potential of God's presence. We're going to look at that in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Here's the first thing. God's presence provides the ultimate security. You know that, but you're going to see it in a different way today. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7, this is what it says. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you. That's the word in the, in the Hebrew. It's like a, a potter is forming the clay. Who, he who shaped you infinitely, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. I called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. That phrase is repeated over and over and over in all of Isaiah. The Holy One, the Pure One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush, or the Chaldeans, and Seba in your stead. In other words, he's going to rearrange nations so that it suits him when it suits him to help them. Look at verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from, daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed, who, I, who as an artist I formed and made. Powerful verses. God's provision is all about our security. God's presence provides that security for us. And here's the first thing that we need to ask. Is God's provision... Or is presence more important to me? Is God's provision, is what he provides, or his presence more important to me? Because if we're going to talk about God's presence, we need to know that we're talking about God's presence, not just his, what he does for us. In verse 1 it says, but now. That's a real change of pace. And it's not that Israel has changed, it's that God has changed. It's not that Israel is out of the woods because they're still doing some really stupid things. I don't know if you know of anybody that would still do stupid things. We're all stupid sometimes, aren't we? We make terrible choices. And God says, even though they have not changed, I have changed. I love them, and I'm going to be with them even when they're being punished, even when they're being disciplined. What the Creator says is, I will redeem you. I will buy you back out of the market. I think that's interesting. There was a time when we had at a church, we had a, a mixer, a, a soundboard that was stolen. 
and we needed to get a soundboard for Easter, and so I was calling around, and I, and I found a, a music store in, there in Amarillo that had exactly the mixer we needed, and I said, this is awesome. You know, they stole it just a week before Easter, and we're going to get this mixer back, and I went, and it was, an, it was a perfect match for what we'd have, the same mixer exactly. In fact, my name was still on one of the little tabs. They'd stolen it and sold it to this music company, and I called the police and I said, this is our mixer. And he said, until we get this straightened out, how, how much are they asking? And I said, well, they're asking $400. This thing is worth about $4,000. They're asking $400. He said, why don't you buy it back and then we'll straighten it out later? I said, it's mine. It's the church's. Why should I buy back what is already mine? We had a little discussion that day. The short end of the thing was the church got the mixer back without having to pay for it again. But you know what? The Lord said, you are mine. I've already bought you with a price. And he buys us back out of the marketplace by giving himself. God loves us that much. And he says, when you pass through the waters, did Israel ever pass through the waters? Remember the Red Sea when the waters parted? Remember when they got to the other end after 40 years of wandering, they passed through the Jordan River. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the river, I will be with you. God's pointing back, I believe, to those times, although there could be a double meaning because in Isaiah 8, verses 7 and 8, it says, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river of the king of Assyria. They will overrun all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Isaiah is giving this prophecy, and he's saying, listen, Israel, you're going to suffer, but just like God was with you when you went through the Red Sea and the Jordan River, God's going to be with you when the Assyrian army comes on you. Folks, has God been with us as a nation? Has God blessed us in the past as a nation? Has he? Do we have the freedom to worship? Do we have all kinds of things that God has given us? God's past provision for us ought to assure us of his intentions. And it doesn't say that we're not going to go through a tough time, but God has blessed us in the past. He will be with us when we go through the deep waters. He's with us. After this last week's rain, we understand the flood analogy, don't we? We understand about the water up to our neck. But when the, it says when you walk through the fire, did Israel ever walk through the fire? Well, shortly after Isaiah wrote this, there were three teenagers that were taken a few years later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were taken into Babylon, and they were taken as captivities, into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, if you don't bow down to this idol that I have erected, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. You remember that story? And they walked through the fire. Daniel 3.27 says, Fire had not, touched, had not harmed their bodies. No hair of their head was singed. For me, that wouldn't be nearly as much work as it would be for others. But no hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. I can't even start a barbecue without smelling like fire. How could they walk through the fire and not smell a fire? And when did they experience God's presence? When Nebuchadnezzar looks, in, looks into the fire, he says, There were three that we put in, and there's a fourth who looks like the son of the living God. This is a man who didn't even believe in Jehovah. He didn't believe in the Lord that they worshiped. And he said, There's, there were three of them, but I see God with them. My question goes back. Do we want God's presence or do we want his provision? 
What I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, O king, live forever, but we will not bow down to this idol. The God we serve, he is able, he is able to keep us from the fire, but if he does not, we will still not worship this idol. And God calls us to us today, and he says, are you just interested in what I can do for you, or do you love me? Are you interested in what I can provide, or do you care about me? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses has struggled with the children of Israel, and they've been bellyaching. They get out into the, into the wilderness, and they don't have water, and then they don't have food, and then they don't like the bread that they're given, and they want meat, and they want rotisserie chicken. You know, they, they want all this stuff from God. And Moses is frustrated. And finally, he says this. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. God's already provided the water. He's already provided the food. But Moses, God has said, why don't you just take him and go? And Moses says, I don't want to go without you. My question to you is this. Do you walk every day like that? Do you want God's presence in your work and in your life? We don't really think that God is going to be a part of our life. We don't, we don't understand that. C.S. Lewis wrote something that I think is just amazing. It's about his early conversion before he was a, a Christian. And he says that we talk about wanting to know the Lord in his presence, but we don't really want to know it. This is what he says. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought, when we thought we were alone. It's always shocking to meet life when we thought we were alone. I was watching one of these, uh, these renovation rehab things, and there was this woman that was redoing her porch with her uncle this week. And there was a snake living under the porch. And they didn't know the snake was there. And every time the, the, the uncle would poke the snake, she would cry out and scream, and she finally went and sat in the front cab of the, of the pickup. Look out, we cry, it's alive. That's exactly what C.S. Lewis says. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. And C.S. Lewis says, I would have done so myself if I could. He said, well, I talked about God and thought about God, but when God became alive, I would have drawn back and proceed no further with Christianity. You see, if God is an impersonal God, well, that's well and good. A subjective God of, of beauty and truth and goodness, a God that just lives inside our heads, that's even better. A formless life force surging through us, a God who gives us power which we can tap, that's the best of all. Someone that I don't have to know, he says. But God himself, alive, pulling at the under, other end of the cord, perhaps approaching me at infinite speed. God the hunter, God the king, God the husband who wants a love relationship, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. What was that? Did you hear that noise? Was that a real footstep in the, in the hall? Is there a burglar in the house? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found God. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing God had found us. Is God's provision or his presence more important to us? Number two, is, God, is being precious to God valuable to me? Did you notice it says that we are precious? Verse four, since you are precious and honored in God's sight. Is that valuable? What's the most precious thing to you? 
I read this true story this week. The guy was from, from Arkansas. I'm so sorry, Gary. I wish he'd been from someplace else, but he was from Arkansas. Gary's background is from Arkansas. Don't, don't hold that against him. He loves Jesus anyway, okay? This man's home was on fire in Arkansas. And as the fire truck pulled up, he yelled, Oh, no, I've got to go get it. It's the most precious thing in my home. And he rushed in. And the fireman said, Was there a pet? No. Was there a child? No. Was there a spouse? No. And they thought, Well, he must have pictures or something. And sure enough, he came out with one big uh, painting. And he turned it around. It was a picture of Elvis on black velvet. You might be a redneck if that's the most precious thing in your home. That worries me. True story. Can you imagine that? I worked in a bank when I was in the, in going through college. And I was reading, you know, every now and then people don't pay anymore in their safe deposit boxes. And the things that are the most precious, the things that you can't live without, if you lose them, you're going to be in deep trouble. That's what you should put in a safe deposit box. In South Carolina, these are some things when they open the box, the only thing that they found in there. In one of them, three sets of baby teeth. In another one, $4,000 $4,000 worth of rare coins and a broken trans- transistor radio from 1962. A broken transistor radio, that's important. I'd keep that in a safety deposit box. Here's my favorite. $100,000 in cash. They had not paid the rent, and they, they, had, for, they had gone in and opened this up. $100,000 in cash and 25 gallstones in a little bottle. Man, if I lose those gallstones, I'm in deep trouble. You know, you're going to put them back in? I don't think so. This is in Charleston, South Carolina. Here's the other thing that they found in one of them. This is all they found. It was in, they finally found who it was. It was the military papers for Ira Corey. The military papers showing that he was a a soldier in good standing. He was a Union soldier in the New Jersey Regiment during the Civil War. Did you hear where I say that they found those? He was a resident of Charleston, South Carolina... And he was a Union soldier in a New Jersey regiment. They were precious to him. I bet he didn't want anybody to know that as long as he lived. What's precious to you? I don't know, but I know what's precious to God. You are, and I am. I matter to God. Verse 4 says he loves me. He's willing to to trade people's lives. In fact, he traded one life, eternal life, the life of Jesus Christ, his son. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is with me. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. How valuable is that? How great is this God? You see, I don't think that we get it. We don't understand how great his presence is to be precious to someone like that. Mark Buchanan says it this way, in all of our spectacles, all of our moments in our sun, our heroism, our conquest, all of the merest hints, all are the merest hints of God's splendor, of his character, of his worth, of his glory. Our glory is dim. The best we can do is a spattering of light, then darkness. God's glory is so brilliant. His character is so perfect. It's a radiance so huge, so intense, that it burns up even the shadows it might otherwise cast. The best we can do is fleeting. The very best we can do is fleeting. 
It's thunderous applause that dwindles to a musty nostalgia in time to the silence of forgetting that we even applauded. But God's glory, God's character, who God is, is a whisper that gathers and crescendos to a cosmos-shaking, eternally sustained hallelujah. Did you get that? Who God is starts as a whisper in our mind, and it builds for eternity. Take the most glorious sight you've ever beheld, a moment when your heart was surging to the point of bursting, when every ounce of you shimmered, every inch of you brimmed, and multiply that a million times, no, a billion times, and still all you have is the slightest echo, the faintest glint of who God is in his eternal glory. One day we will see it. One day we will have hearts and eyes prepared to see it. But not yet. Not now. Now we can't even imagine it. Now beholding God in his unveiled splendor would consume us. We could sooner and easier walk barefoot on the sun. We could more easily swallow the ocean. God is too much. And this is the God who loves us, who who values us, who thinks we're precious. That is incredible security from the presence of God. Here's the third one. Is God's purpose vital to me? We're secure because he's with us. We're secure because he loves us. And we're secure because God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us. What's your purpose in life? Another true story. This guy's not from Arkansas. Unfortunately, he's from Kansas City, Missouri. His name is Brian Kelly. He wanted to leave this earth in a burst of glory, literally. So this is what Brian Kelly did. He left a will that said, when I die, I want to be cremated. And he died on July 2nd, 1994. His parents were from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They were still living. And so his instructions for his body's ashes were to be mixed with gunpowder and packed into a canister-sized firework shell. 12 inches in diameter. On August 12, 1994, at a convention of pyrotechnicians in Pittsburgh, where his parents lived, Brian Kelly was reduced to two pounds of gray, silky dust and was hurled heavenward, spiraling into the night sky with two silvery comet tails looping behind, where he erupted in thunder and starbursts, a cannonade of booms, a cascade of brilliant colors, and then Brian Kelly was blackness. You say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Who would want to go out with that kind of a burst of glory? Let me ask you a question. Did Brian Kelly make more of an impact with his life than you have with yours? God says, I made you to make an impact, and not as a part of a firework shell. I made you to have an impact on those around you. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says we are to reflect the Lord's glory. We are to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. We are to be his children. When we break, we ought to bleed God and God's love and God's power and God's passion and God's purpose. Proverbs 19.21 says it this way. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. If you want the greatest security, find out what God's purpose is. We were studying that in class 101 this morning. We went through the five purposes that we have as a church, as individuals, as a part of that church. We were studying that. God has a plan for us. 
Tony Evans said something, and my wife found it, and she typed it out for me, and I keep it on my desk. I look at it every morning. This is what, it, what Tony Evans says. Don't make your dream your goal over the purpose of God. Did you get that? Don't make your dream your goal over the purpose of God because then you might end up settling for your dream and miss God's purpose. So this is what Tony Evans says. Make God's purpose your dream. Make God's purpose your dream. Does my life resemble God's purpose? If you want to find security in God, you realize He's with you in the good times and bad. You realize that He loves you more than you can imagine. And realize that He created you for a purpose. There is a reason for you to be here right now. If we did not have a purpose, God might as well, as soon as we accept Him as our Savior, just take us out of this earth. And He's not done that. God's presence provides ultimate security. And here's the second part. God's presence is essential for salvation. God's presence is essential for salvation. Look at verse 8, Isaiah 43, 8. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. He says, go find those people that they think that they've got it, but they, aren't, they haven't seen it. They don't hear it yet. Verse 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, it's true, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Look at what he says. God is saying it. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Did you get that? There's only one God. There's only one Savior. Verse 12, I revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you, you're my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient times I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. He's telling them, even when you see Babylon come, I'm still in charge. Look at verse 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. He's referring back to that again. Who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Look at verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. In verses 22 through 24, he talks about you've not called to me. You've not brought me your, your sacrifices. And then he says, I'm the one who blots out your transgressions. I'm the one who remembers your sins no more. God's presence is essential for salvation. Two things, two simple things. Do I trust the Lord? And now, I didn't say, do I say I trust in the Lord? Do I trust the Lord? If his presence is with you, it allows you to trust him. If his presence is with you, then it gives you that ability to trust him. 
God claims to be unique. Did you hear that? There's only one Savior. There's only one God. You know what's sad to me? Person after person after person today has been talking about there are many roads that lead to heaven. You know, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Is that true, by the way? Have you ever been on a road that didn't lead you to the top of the mountain? Yeah, absolutely. I've been on many roads that didn't lead me to the top of the mountain. And God says there's one way, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Something that broke my heart this week. I, I hate to bash other ministries, and I, and I won't bash them. But you need to know something. There's a man out there today by the name of Rob Bell. He's made national headlines. He was on Good Morning America. He's written a book called Love Wins. Rob Bell started a church saying that he believed in Jesus Christ. Rob Bell started a church asking people to come to Christ. And he's written this new book. And in the preface of his book, listen to what he says. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is what Rob Bell says, and I quote, this is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Did you hear what Rob Bell just said? Rob Bell says he doesn't believe in hell. Rob Bell says that that, that is subverting Jesus' message. Now, I wonder what Rob Bell does with the passage where Jesus talks about the rich man and, and Lazarus, and the rich man is in hell, in torment. I wonder what he does with that. I wonder what he does with Revelation, where Jesus is speaking, and he, and he talks about those that are going to be cast into eternal lake of fire. I don't know what Rob Bell does with that, because he just ignores it in the rest of his book. Later in his book, though, he says something that I just I could not believe. People come to Jesus in all sorts of ways. Sometimes people use his name, other times they don't. Some people have so much baggage with regard to the name Jesus that when they encounter the mystery present in all of creation, grace, peace, love, acceptance, healing, forgiveness, the last thing they're inclined to name it is Jesus, and it's okay. No, it's not. He called his book, Love Wins. If I were going to write a rebuttal of his book, I would say my, the name of my book would be Jesus Saves. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it has not changed. It's still the same message. There is one God. There is one Savior. God used his son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross to pay for the sins of all of the world. The Old Testament looks forward to Rob Bell. The New Testament's looking... Uh, the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus Christ and the cross. Certainly not to Rob Bell. The New Testament looks back to Calvary, to the resurrection, and we are still saved by the same thing. There is one method of salvation in the Old Testament and the New. Romans talks about Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're told by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. You can't work for it, so you can't boast. It's not changed. Hosea 13, 4 says it this way. But I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. Now listen, folks, what I said about Rob Bell 
I want you to pray for Abel that his eyes will be open because exactly this passage talks about those who are blind and can't see, those who have ears but have not heard. This breaks my heart. I'm not here to bash on this guy. There's a, a group called the Emerging Church, and many within the Emerging Church, Brian McLaren took Rob Bell's side, and he says, well, just because he's redefined things like salvation and hell doesn't make him uh, a bad guy. It doesn't make him a bad guy, but it doesn't necessarily make him a Christian pastor either. You can't redefine those things. God defines them. We need to go with his definition. Do I trust God and his presence in all the things he's done for me? And that's the question that Isaiah puts to Israel. Are you trusting in what you've done? Are you trusting in who you think you are? Are you trusting in God himself? And here's the second part. Do I call on the Lord? Verse 22 says, You have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. How do you call on the Lord? Well, there's a couple of ways. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord... If you believe in your heart and you confess it with your mouth, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's how you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's one way that you call upon the Lord. But, but Isaiah also calls to them and says, once you've come to know the Lord, do you call on him? He's with you day by day. He walks with you, the old song, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. That's a true song. And the Lord says, have you been walking with me and not talked with me? Have you been walking with me and never called on me? Do you worship me? What we did this morning with the music is corporate worship. Do you do it during the week? Not just with music, but do you worship him on a day-to-day -day basis? We can call on him in prayer. So many ways that we can call on the Lord day by day. It says the sacrifices were not meant to burden you. Once a year they were to bring one lamb and Israel thought, oh, we'll do it even better. There was at one, one place, uh, 2 Chronicles 5, 7, 5, that Israel didn't bring a lamb apiece. There was one day when they slaughtered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep offered as a sacrifice. Did you get that? 22,000 cattle. When I was at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch many, many years ago, they had a processing plant. And one day I went up to the processing plant because they said, you got to come see. And they were butchering about five uh, head of cattle a week to feed all of the people on this ranch. It was a working ranch. And all the boys that came in, the older boys, some of them would work at the processing plant. That was the kill plant where they slaughtered the cattle. I couldn't eat meat for days, for weeks, really. Didn't enjoy it. Man, you watch one cattle and all that blood and that gore, and it's like, ooh, I'm not eating that stuff. 22,000 cattle, are you kidding me? 120,000 sheep, there would have been blood running everywhere. You know the problem with it? God never asked for that. He said, I didn't want to burden you with your sacrifices. I just wanted to remind you how important it was when you do wrong. That blood has to be shed. It's not politically correct. Peter would have a fit. But God says, do you understand how important it is for you to call on me? To recognize that he's near us, that his presence is with us. I love Psalm 146, 18. The Lord is near 
to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And today God says, I want you to call on me as Savior, and I want you to call on me as friend. John 15, 15 says, no longer do I call you a servant, but I've called you my friend. I want to walk with you and talk with you and and be with you. There was a man by the name of Jim Elliott. He was a young man going to Wheaton College many years ago in the 50s. Jim Elliott was one of the five who were martyred as missionaries in Ecuador. And in his diary one day, he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But on January 15, 1951, Jim Elliott also wrote this, and I think it's actually the thing that I like the most that he wrote. He had just come out of a class where they were studying the presence of God. He came out of a class where they were looking at Isaiah 43. And this is what he wrote in his diary. I walked out to the hill just now, just after class. It's exalting. It's delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart. To gaze and glory and give oneself again to God whose presence is with me. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God right here on earth I don't care if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy, God will one day give me a host of children that I may lead through the vast star fields in this universe to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. He's talking about the stars in the universe. But if God does not do this, if only I may see him, If only I could smell Jesus' garments and smile into my lover's eyes. Ah, then, walking the stars, nor children shall matter. Only his presence, only himself. The Lord says, I will be with you. Do you love me? Do you know me? Do you trust me? Will you call on me? Would you bow with me? Would you pray? Father, you know each person here today. You know where they are. Spiritually, physically, emotionally. You know what's happened in each person's life today. The potential of having you by our side every day changes everything. Changes who we are, what we do, how we love how we grow, where we go in life, and we don't get it. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we would rather see you act than hear your voice. Forgive us for the times when we would rather have you do something than just be there with us. Forgive us for going into the fire and not even looking to see that you're there that you'll walk us through it. Lord, we need you. In all that we say and all that we do, we need you desperately. We just don't know it.
So forgive us and cleanse us and empower us. And Father, if there's one today who maybe has never called on you in that way, they believe today that, that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, came to die in their place, took their place on the cross, and was raised again to prove that he is who he said he was, that he has all power. They believe that, and now they want to talk about it. Cause them to, to come to the front, Father, and sit on one of these chairs to respond to this invitation. Father, fill us. Use us. May your Holy Spirit empower us each step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.